0: Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. The book of Romans, chapter 1. We begin reading for us again uh, in the first verse of the letter. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus... Well, tonight we come to verses 6 and 7. And it seems to me that these two verses uh, can be unpacked through seven uh, propositions, seven truth statements, uh, all that are found in these two verses. And so my plan tonight is to look at four of these, four propositions or truth statements that are found in these two verses and that are important for us to see and understand. And the first one is this. Simple. It's obvious. On the face of it. This letter is to the church in Rome. We see this very clearly in verse 7. To all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Verse 1 told us the author of this letter, Paul. And we already spent time in past weeks talking about, reminding ourselves... Paul was. Well now in verse 7 we finally see who this letter is for the church in Rome and we've not yet taken time to talk about who this church was and obviously knowing a little bit about the church in Rome will help us as we seek to understand this letter. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about the church in Rome. Perhaps most importantly, what you need to know about this church is that it was not a church started by Paul. He had never visited this church before he wrote this epistle. Paul was not writing to men and women who had been longtime friends of his. Rather, though he did have some acquaintances that were a part of this church, the majority of the members of this church were strangers to him And he to them. You might wonder why Paul wrote such an exceptionally long introduction of himself. Six verses at the beginning of this letter just introducing himself. this, This is why. Even back then you didn't typically write that long of an introduction. It was typically blank to blank. right? And then you had a greeting. So Paul adds in all of these verses, these first six verses, to help these Christians in Rome know who he is. And you notice what his focus is on. Hi, my name is Paul, and I'm a servant of Christ, and I've been set apart for the gospel, and I have a passion for the nations. That's, that's how he introduces himself. It's about Christ, it's about the gospel, it's about the nations. That's what he wants them to know about him. Well, then in verse 7, we finally get to him naming his audience the Roman Christians. Now, Roman Catholics teach that the Apostle Peter founded this church in Rome. They teach that Peter established it, that Peter ruled over it, and then he passed on his authority to a successor who then passed on that authority to another successor, which became the office of the Pope and leads down all the way to, to Pope Benedict Sixteenth, the Pope who is with us today. Uh, the problem is that that simply is not true. Uh, Peter did not establish the church in Rome, nor was he the first Pope, as the Roman Catholic Church would have us believe. Uh, in fact, there is evidence that there was a sizable community of Christians in Rome, as early as the mid 30s AD, we think Jesus died around AD 30. Within four or five years later, there is already evidence of a church existing in the city of Rome. This is much earlier than any missionary journey that Peter would have taken. Most scholars think that the church in Rome had its origin at Pentecost, and this is where Peter does have a role. Uh, In Acts 2.10, the day of Pentecost, we are informed that there were visitors from Rome who were present when Peter delivered that gospel message and saw thousands come to Christ. And it seems very likely that at least some of the thousands that came to Christ were these visitors from the city of Rome. And therefore, these were probably the first Roman Christians who returned to Rome and began to meet together and establish a Christian community there. Um, by the time Paul visits the city of Corinth, this is around AD 50, he was already encountering Christian Jews who had come from Rome because Emperor Claudius came into power and he expelled all the Jews from Rome. And so this is AD 50 and 20 years after the death of Christ, Paul is already meeting Jews who are Christians, who have come from the city of Rome because they've been expelled. you th- probably heard of two of these people, Aquila and Priscilla. Remember Aquila and Priscilla? They were Christian Jews from the church in Rome. Um, They apparently, once the expulsion was over, were able to return to Rome. In fact, that's why Paul, at the end of this letter, greets them. Uh, He says, greet Aquila and Priscilla, uh, the church in their house. There's a fourth century commentary on the book of Romans, and it's written by a man called Ambrosiaster. And he includes at the beginning of that commentary that the Christians in Rome had embraced the faith of Christ, albeit according to the Jewish rite, without seeing any signs or mighty works or any of the apostles. So that commentary from early in Christian history argues that the church in Rome was founded and started in Rome before any of the apostles ever went there. Now, some have taken this to mean that the church in Rome was at a great disadvantage when compared with the other churches. We think of the church in Antioch, we think of the church in Corinth, we think of the church in in Ephesus, and all of those churches benefited from long-term stays by the apostles. This has led many to presume that the reason Paul is writing this letter is to fix all the things that are wrong with the Roman church, to correct their many spiritual errors and their immaturity because they have been lacking because they did not have an apostle present. The problem with that is what Paul himself says in this letter about this church. Paul, when he assesses the Roman church or what he knew of them, does not write of them as a spiritually immature church in need of his correction. In fact, what he says about the Roman church is overwhelmingly positive. Uh, For example, look at verse 8, right? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Or we could look at the end of Romans. In Romans 15, 14, next to last chapter, Paul says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Does that sound like a church in dire need of correction, an immature body that needs an apostle to step in? I I don't think so. And so I don't think that's really what's going on here. Rather, Paul says in Romans 15, 15 through 16, he says this, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I I think this is Paul's In the book of Romans, that is the clearest expression that Paul ever gives of why he wrote this letter. He does not seem to be concerned that they have fallen into some grave error. Rather, he recognizes that this is an important, largely Gentile church. And he is the one apostle who has been called particularly to minister to and encourage the Gentile churches. And so he feels he has a joyful obligation to be of some benefit this body. And as we've mentioned before, he has a desire to partner with this church in getting the gospel north of Rome into Spain. Now, since Paul had not been to Rome, since Paul was not familiar with most of the members of this church, how familiar was he with what was actually happening in this church? How familiar was he with the, the goings ons of the church? Well, he probably knew something of the church because of travelers and messengers coming to and from the city. Lots of trade taking place, and so whatever city he was in, there would be people coming to and from the city of Rome. Plus, he did have that relationship with Priscilla and with Aquila, uh, particularly while they were in Corinth. But unlike other letters of Paul, nowhere in Romans does Paul get very specific about issues within this particular church. He, he almost never in the book of Romans gets personal and says, here is something going on with you that I need to address. Rather, it seems that Paul looks at his overall ministry and all the other churches he's been to and dealt with, and he, he thinks of all the errors he's encountered elsewhere, and then he uses this letter to simply lay out sound Christian doctrine and practice by way of reminder, with the hope that this would be helpful to them. And then as he mentions later, he intends to go visit them and maybe he can be of more specific help then. Now, if we're correct in what we've said so far concerning the, the Roman church's origins, we need to know that at its beginning, this church was probably made up mostly of converted Jews and Jewish proselytes. This church began as a Jewish church. However, Emperor Claudius comes into power He demands that all the Jews, Christian or non-Christian, all Jews need to leave the city. So then the church in Rome was left only with its Gentile members. And during that time, while these Jewish Christians were gone, it appears that this church continued to grow, continued to evangelize, continued to see converts, so that by the time the expulsion ended and those Christian Jews returned to their church, they found themselves now in the minority with the Gentile Christians being The majority. Uh, Paul addresses both Jews and Gentiles in this letter. He he says a lot about Jewish stuff, and that's caused a lot of people to say, well, he must have been writing mainly to Jews. Surely Gentiles would not have been interested in all of these Jewish things. But the truth is, uh, all Christians, first of all, ought to be interested in Jewish things because we have now become the true Israel, have we not? Uh, So there's that argument. But then second, it's very likely that those Gentiles who converted to Christianity, often they already had a a prior interest in Judaism before that. And so uh, that's not a a valid argument to make. Uh, One final aspect about this church needs to be noted. Though we often speak of this church as the church in Rome, the fact of the matter is that there were churches within the church in Rome. For example, in Romans 16, 5, we find Paul greeting the church that meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. This was one of the churches within the church in Rome because it is very unlikely that the Christians in Rome ever had many opportunities like we do to gather all together in one place particularly because this church was becoming larger and larger and it was not popular to be a Christian in Rome at this time. You could not just gather together in a large crowd and worship. And therefore this church, though they were one body, though they were one church, they were separated in what appears to have been these house churches where they would meet together in small groups. And so one of the ways in which Paul seeks to be helpful to this church is, th- is consider this, if you're a church and some of your church is Jewish Christians, and some of your church is Gentile Christians, and they have to meet in different people's homes, in different people's small groups, you could see how there might be a tendency for the Gentile Christians to meet together in their homes, and for the Jewish Christians to meet together. In their homes. Do you see how there could become factions in the church? And so it is interesting that Paul does spend a lot of time talking about Jewish Gentile relations in this letter. So that's kind of a brief survey of the church that Paul is writing to. Truth number one that we see here Paul's writing to the church in Rome. Truth number two Paul says that the church in Rome is among those who are called of Christ Jesus. So truth number one, he's writing to the church in Rome. Truth number two, this church he's writing to, these people, they are among that group that are known as the called. The called of Jesus Christ. Do you see it in verse 6? Including you who are called. Do you see where it says to belong to Jesus Christ? Do you see that in most translations, to belong? That is not actually in the Greek That is your translators trying to help you make sense of what's being said here. Uh, The only problem is I I don't actually think that's what Paul meant. It is true that we're called to belong to Jesus Christ, but literally, verse 6 says in the Greek, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. And so I think the emphasis of Paul is not that we're called to belong to Jesus Christ, but the emphasis is that we've been called of Jesus. Jesus Christ, that He is the one who is doing the calling. If we think about all that we've already seen in these verses, we can say Jesus is sitting on His throne with all authority and all power. He has, been given, he has given His church grace and apostleship to do evangelism, to do missions, to spread the gospel, causing people to become believers and to glory in the name of Jesus. And then Paul says to his, to his audience, and you Roman Christians are an example of what Christ has done. You are part of those people that Christ has called to Himself out of the nations. You are part of those people whom Christ empowered His church as He empowered Peter on the day of Pentecost to preach that nation. And then Christ worked through that message to call you to Himself and to bring you to where you are today. Glory in the name of Jesus. So in verse 6, He uses the Roman Christians as an example, as evidence, of what he's just been teaching in verses 3, 4, and 5. As you can imagine, with Rome being at the center of the empire, this church was likely not only largely Gentile, but it was also probably a largely diverse church. That is, it is likely that there were many different nationalities represented at this church, many different cultural backgrounds who were represented at this church. Um, it's a good chance that there were people from all sorts of different backgrounds who had been called by Jesus and made a part of this one body. But what does it mean to be called? The Bible says that we've been called as Christians. What does it mean to be called? Well, it means that we have been effectually and irresistibly drawn to Christ. This is not a call in which Jesus calls out, Come to me! And then we can either choose to come or not to come. Now that kind of call exists. that, That kind of call goes out all the time when we preach, Believe on Christ. That is Jesus Christ working through His people, like the pastor, to call out, Believe on Christ. And people hear that, and they can either choose to obey it, or they can choose not to obey it. They can choose to answer that call, or choose not to answer that call. That is one truth that exists. But when Paul uses the word calling, he's not talking about that that auditory call, that, that call that you can hear with your ears. Rather, he is talking about that invisible call that grips your heart, changes it, and brings you to himself. To have been called means that Jesus has said to you through the gospel, come to me in such a way that your heart gladly obeyed. Imagine a doctor who at great sacrifice to himself is able to come up with a cure for a dying man. And then, once the doctor has finally got the cure prepared, we find that that dying man is both unable and unwilling to come to the doctor for the cure. Well, Jesus not only died on the cross to provide us the cure for our sin problem, but he also supernaturally changes our unwilling hearts and makes us both willing and able to come and to receive his cure. that's what it means to have been called in the letters of Paul. That's how he speaks of this. It's a miracle of mercy. A lot we could say about being called. Let me just remind you of two things. Look at Romans 8 really quick, the great eight. One of the sweetest chapters in the Bible. Romans 8. Two truths that you should always remember about those who have been called. One you should know very well. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That promise is not given to those who are outside of Christ. The Bible never promises that all things are working for the good of those who do not know Christ. The Bible only promises that all things are working for the good of those who have been called, brought to Christ, made a part of Him, united to Him. And then, this is the second thing, in verses 29 and 30 we learn the great truth that every person who is called is eternally secure. That every person whom Jesus draws to Himself, brings to Himself through that supernatural call of the Holy Spirit, they come to Jesus and they are eternally His. Romans 8, 29, Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to this. And those whom He predestined, He also called... And those whom He called, He also justified. And what justified means? He made them right with God. Does it say, and some of those He called, He justified? No. No. It's called the great golden chain of salvation. It is unbreakable. Those whom He called, He justified. If you've been called, you've been justified. If God supernaturally brought you to Christ so that your heart came to Him in saving faith, you have been made right with God. And then look at the last part. And those whom He justified, He also what's the word glorified. That means made perfect. There is no such thing as a Christian who has been called and therefore justified who will not ultimately be glorified. It's not some of those that He called and justified will be glorified. It is those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. If you can be sure of your calling, you can be sure of your salvation. That's why Peter tells us, make your calling and election sure. Know that you have been brought to Christ and you can rest in eternal security. Well, here's the thing from chapter one, back at chapter one. Here's the point I think Paul is making in verse six namely, it is Christ who does the calling. I don't think it's supposed to say, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Literally in the Greek, it's you who are called of Jesus Christ, you who have been called of Him. He is the one who does the calling. It is Jesus' prerogative. And He does not call everyone in this way. He calls those whom He chooses. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27, Jesus said this. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. One of the points that Paul was making here is that now that Jesus, by His resurrection, has become the Son of God in power, Jesus Christ our Lord, according to the Spirit of holiness, now that He reigns, He has the divine prerogative in salvation. He is sovereign over the salvation of all men. He has mercy on whom He has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. He knows the sheep that have been given to him by his Father. He calls them by name, and they come to him. And of all those he calls, and they come to him, he will lose none of them. If you have been called, it's not because of anything good in yourself, but solely because of the gracious decision of God towards you. And so be humble and be thankful and live as one who has been blessed beyond words. Now, how would you answer a child if they came to you and said, who is it that calls you to salvation? Is it the Father, or is it the Son, or is it the Spirit? Which, which member of the Godhead is it that, that calls us to Christ? And the answer is... Yes, all of them. It's the same question as who created the world, right? Well, God the Father, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But Jesus Christ also created the world. Colossians 1.16 tells us it was through the Son of God that the world was made. And then we're also told in Genesis 1 that the Spirit was there dwelling over the waters, that He had a role in creation. So similarly, just as the Godhead was involved, Father, Son, and Spirit, in creating the world, so also the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, came together in creating a Christian. Your calling was the work of all three. God the Father calls. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Yet, we see right here in these verses that the Son calls. And then, of course, we know from other places that it is the Spirit who is the one who actually comes into our hearts and makes us willing and able to come. So this is miracle, this is the miracle that changed us forever. It is a Trinitarian event. What a thought that we who deserve hell would receive the attention of the Father, Son, and Spirit together working on this grand project, this miracle of making you a Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. Proposition 1, letters to the church in Rome. Proposition 2, they are among those who are known as the called. I pray that you are among that number, known as the called. Now number 3. We've just been told who we've been called by, namely the exalted Lord Jesus. Proposition three is what we have been called to. Christians are those who have been called to be saints. Christians are those who have been called to be saints. Look at verse seven. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You and I, dear Christians, have been called to be to sainthood. Does that mean we should walk around calling each other, you know, Saint Dax and Saint Frank and Saint Janet? I mean, is that, is that what we should do? No, of course not. And We don't become saints when we die. We don't become saints by a, a proclamation of the Pope. Actually, the word saints is a word used Uh, In the Old Testament, it's the Greek form of a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, applied to God's people, Israel. And Paul now takes that word that literally means holy ones. This is a group of people who have been set apart by God to be used for his purposes. They have been made sacred. They have been made a sacred instrument for his use in his purposes. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. Paul now takes that language from the Old Testament and applies it to the church. He says we are saints, not because we have achieved moral excellence, but simply because God has put His favor on us and set us apart. Leon Morse says this better than I could. I wouldn't have noticed this if he hadn't said it. He said we should not overlook the plural. Notice, called to be Saints. We sometimes speak of an individual man or an individual woman as a saint, and we refer to St. Peter or St. Mary or the like. This is not a New Testament usage. The word is never used there of any individual believer. Do you know that? The Bible never uses the word saint to refer to an individual. It is always plural and used of believers, and the plural points to believers as a group, as a community. Set apart for God. Again, the term does not convey the idea of outstanding ethical achievement, which we usually understand by saintliness. While the importance of right living is insisted on and may even be implied within this very term, the main thrust is not there. It is rather in the notion of belonging to God. End quote. And so, what he's saying is that this word, when we hear the word saint, we ought not to think first of Mother Teresa, you know, someone who's known for moral piety. Rather, the word saint ought to first bring into our mind, set apart to belong to God. That's who we are. We've been set apart to belong to God. Finally, proposition four. It's the last one we're going to look at tonight. These Roman Christians, and we as Christians, are loved by God. You see it right there in verse 7 all those in Rome who are loved by God. Now wouldn't that be everybody? Wouldn't that be all the citizens in Rome? Didn't God love every person in Rome? Yes. But there is more to the love of God than just His general love for all mankind. There is that, and I do not, hear me, I do not want to belittle that common love which God has for all who have been made in His image. But understanding that there is that love that God has for all the world, we can also say on top of that, we can add to that, and there is this special love that God has for those who are His children. In fact, throughout Paul's letters, the loved of God are those whom God has set His favor on in eternity past, chosen them to belong to Himself, and have been made recipients of His salvation. God's beloved are those whom He has chosen to lavish with mercy. In the Bible, love is not defined mainly in terms of emotion, but in terms of action. God has loved the world... Through action, He gave His Son so that any, whosoever will believe, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, all seven billion people almost on planet Earth, right? If all seven billion people on planet Earth today came to Christ and believed, they would be saved. God has shown His love for the world by giving His Son for the world. Well, similarly, God has shown His love for us, His children, through actions, many actions. The first of these is God's act of setting us apart for the foundations of the world. It is, a, it is a real shame that we struggle with doctrines like predestination and election because in the Bible, these doctrines are always intimately connected with the love of God. They are bound up with the love of God. If we think of the love of God for us, apart from election, we're not thinking of the love of God the way Paul uses it. We think of Ephesians 1, right? In love He predestined us. Even here in Romans 1, it is Jesus sitting on His throne who loves us by calling us to Himself out of the nations. Colossians 3.12, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy," that's set apart, "...and beloved." Or 2 Thessalonians 2.13, "...we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you." And so again and again in Scriptures, God's love for us is expressed in His choosing of us, and this is exactly how the Old Testament talked, Right? How was Israel known as the the beloved of God? Because God set His special favor on that nation out of all the nations of the world. God chose Jacob and his descendants, the Israelites, to be His people. He rejected Esau and the Edomites, and they were not His people. God speaks of this in Malachi 1 by saying, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Not only has God loved us by choosing us to be His people, He has also loved us through the death of His Son for our sins. Later in moments, Paul is going to say this, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in eternity past, God loved us. At the cross, God loved us. But more than that, God has shown His love for us by bringing about our conversion, by causing us to be born again, taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That moment that God stepped into your heart through the gospel and made your dead heart alive to Christ, that was love. was a result of the great love with which he has loved you. And then on top of this, not only has God loved us in the eternity past, not only has God loved us supremely at the cross, not only has God loved us by bringing about our conversion, but we know that His wondrous love is with us even now as He preserves us and protects us and brings us safely and securely to Himself in heaven. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Christians, we are the beloved of God. He loved us in eternity past when He wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. He loved us in the garden when He pronounced a curse on the serpent and promised that one day the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head. He loved us when He made a covenant with Abraham that He would make a people for His own treasured possession. He was loving us when He gave the law. He loved us when He was relating to Israel for century after century so that that nation would be an example to us of how unfaithful we are as sinful people and yet how wondrously faithful He is to us. God was loving us when Jesus was born. He was loving us through Jesus' perfect life. He was loving us supremely at the cross when He poured out on Jesus the wrath that our sins deserved. He was loving us when He rose Jesus from the dead and exalted Him. He was loving us when He called the apostles to take the gospel to the world and to write scripture for our benefit. He loved us when He calls that gospel to penetrate our hearts and bring us to faith. He loves us even now as he ministers to us through his word and through his people and through his creation. And God will love us tomorrow as he continues to care for us through whatever lies ahead. And God will love us forever as he ushers us into his presence to dwell with him for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, we do not deserve it, but we are loved. quickly by calling the Roman Christians the loved of God it's another example of Paul taking language from the Old Testament used of Israel and now saying you Christians the church that applies to you it's just the beginning hints of something he's going to lay out more fully later namely that we the Christian church are the true Israel of God let me close this way are you living, Christian, are you living with a conscious awareness of God's love for you? Have you begun to grasp the depth of how much He loves you? Have you grown in your consideration of all the many ways He has and is and will express that love to you? And is living in that reality making a difference in your life? We could all kill grumbling and complaining and ungratefulness in our hearts if we would just learn to think about and rest in God's love for us. We are called to bask in all that He's done for us. We need to embrace what the Bible says about us that we are sinners saved by amazing grace, that we are now children of God whom God will delight in for all eternity. So we ought to be encouraged. God loves you is not a silly slogan. It is a truth that God has proven to us again and again and again even at the cost of His Son and it is the truth that you and I will rejoice in with singing and with worship forever and ever in heaven. There's nothing trite about God loves you. It ought to be at the very foundation of your soul. I read this Wednesday night. Let me read it again. John Flavel said, "...the love of God to believers is a bountiful love, continually streaming forth in blessings both innumerable and invaluable to their souls and bodies. Christian, it would quickly weary your arm, indeed the arm of an angel, to write down even the thousandth part of the blessings." which have already flowed out of this precious fountain to you. And yet, all that you have received in this world is but the beginning of His mercy, just the first fruits of God's love to you. Isn't that a great thought? We've only just begun. We've only had the appetizer of God's love for us. And we will know the feast when we step into his presence. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Brothers, sisters, let us live in the reality of God's love for us as shown through Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. Are there any questions?